The Mersey River is synonymous with Liverpool. It makes this great poor city, which grew around the first enclosed dock in the world, where Liverpool One shopping centre now stands. Sailors have worked on it, tourists have flocked to ferry across it, and musicians have played to its beat. It is steeped in history, from the burgeoning trade that would lead to the city's late 19th century development, to its violent past of the transatlantic slave trade. All the while, the iconic liver birds atop the liver building look down upon the docks. Legend has it that Bertie looks over the city while Bella looks out to guide the boats on the Mersey's shores. Amongst the highs and lows of the river, the development and the danger, who was there when the tide quite literally got too high? So yes, so the Leeds-Liverpool Canal was at the bottom of their street um, and children would sometimes play in there and swim and they, you can imagine they'd get into trouble. So they'd call for him, he'd run down the street and rescue children, rescue other people. And today, what is the continued legacy of heroes at sea? That community ethos that we see in them is just extraordinary and beautiful to behold. You know, they're always putting the interests of others and the safety of others before their own. This is the National Museum's Liverpool podcast. I'm content producer Megan India McGurk, and we, alongside our partners, Melodic Distraction Radio, will thread together stories from our collections with experiences of people in Liverpool today, exploring connections between past and present. We start off with a story from Melodic Distraction presenter, Mia Thornton. On the North Atlantic coast of South America, dense with rainforests and pristine beaches, sits the country of Guyana. Deriving from the indigenous Amerindian language, Guyana can be translated to land of water or land of many waters. It seems to be no coincidence that this tropic land was the birthplace of James Clark. At the age of 14 years old, James lived on the outskirts of Georgetown. It was there that he stumbled across a witch doctor, who warned James that he must leave Guyana or something terrible would happen to him. James ran to the port and embarked on a journey which would soon change his life. Emerging from a Russian timber ship which he was stowed away on, James had finally reached land, stepping foot onto the blustering docks of Liverpool, unaware of the path that lay before him. So he got off starving and in rags, and he's living on the streets. That's Martin Clark, James's grandson. I can imagine what it would have been like at that time. And um, he was taken in by local priests. And after that, he was adopted by a family called the Crawford family. So they basically uh, adopted him, looked after him. Um, and the sporting side came because they were all into boxing. So I'd imagine he'd have been a the only black person in hundreds of thousands of uh, Irish immigrants. So then he grew up in the area. He married uh, my grandmother, uh, an Irish woman, Elizabeth Murphy. Although James loved boxing, his true talent was realised in a different sport. So he was an established member of the community and he, um, he had a real talent for swimming, which would have been very rare in those days because people wouldn't have been taught to swim. I guess that's from when he was back in, uh, in South America, in Guyana. This unique skill for swimming led James to play a critical role in his new community. 
So the Leeds Liverpool Canal was at the bottom of their street um, and children would sometimes play in there and swim and they, you can imagine they'd get into trouble. So they'd call for him, he'd run down the street and rescue children, rescue other people. He'd also be asked by the police to recover dead bodies, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, the police didn't have the uh, the skills to, to do that. And also he was a docker, as my father was. So again, if somebody fell into the docks, he would either recover the body or, or dive in and rescue them. So that's how he basically became famous. And there'll be dozens, if not hundreds of people in the city who are there because of my grandfather. The 14th of February 1911 saw an event that would cement James's reputation in Liverpool for years to come, when he courageously dove into the West Waterloo Dock and saved the life of a drowning man. After this, James was recognised by the City of Liverpool for both his dedication to teaching others to swim and also his bravery for risking his life in order to save those around him. As a mixed-race black woman currently living in Liverpool, I'm not naive to the city's ties to slavery and the horrific racist attacks that have happened here over the years. It's because of this that I was struggling to comprehend how it was that James was able to exist peacefully in the city, a place which just years later saw Charles Wooten chased by a mob into the River Mersey and pelted with stones until he drowned during the 1919 Liverpool race riots. What was it about James that pushed him to carry out these selfless acts? Maybe it was his skill of swimming that guided him, or an intrinsic characteristic that willed him to help others. Or perhaps was it the circumstances of the environment that surrounded him? I think a lot of it would have been to do with survival. Um, Where they lived, it was, you know, mind-boggling poverty, really. So it'd be 14 families with no gas, electricity or hot water, a single toilet... Um, disease was was rife. I believe um, two or three um, would have been my aunties and uncles would have died as babies. So the so-called setting, second city of the empire was absolutely poverty-ridden. So people just wanted to survive. And you can imagine if he's uh, saving lives, and you know, there would have been a real sense of community because people are just trying to, uh, trying to get by, really. And, and the dock work was casual as well. So people were struggling to eat. So uh, and he had that talent, and you know, credit to him, he made the most of it. And so I think his, um, you know, the respect for him grew. A surprising thing as well, which my auntie, who was his last surviving sibling, Winnie, who died a couple of years ago, is my father's twin. So she, I, um, I asked her about, you know, did you grow up with racism? And she actually said that um, she, they didn't know the concept of racism, and yet they're the only black family in the area. They wouldn't have understood what that, uh, what that meant because they never, ever encountered it as children. In fact, she said the only time she encountered it was when she started work and got on the bus, and the bus driver called her the N-word and wouldn't let her get on the bus. And that, that's the first time she, she encountered it. So, again, that's an amazing angle that, that you wouldn't just think. But I think it's just down to survival, people having to stick together because they had literally nothing. Driven and bonded to others through his instinct for survival, James would go on to become known and remembered as a hero to those around him. Reflecting on the achievements of his grandfather, Martin recounts the city's more recent efforts to commemorate James's legacy. Thanks to the campaigning from the Vauxhall Neighbourhood Council um, and their local newspaper, community newspaper, the Scotty Press, they campaigned to get a street named after him in the area where he grew up as a recognition of his importance to the history of the area. So James Clark Street, and we think he was the first black man to have a street named after him. So that legacy um, 
is there. There's a there's a plaque in the um, the aquatic centre in Wavertree as well as you enter. And I remember there was a ceremony. A lot of the family got together uh, then, and uh, I think Warren Bradley, the uh, the leader of City Council at that time, unveiled a plaque. So again, people will walk past that and and think to themselves, who's that? And another plaque on the which was by the Leeds Liverpool Canal in the it's now on the side of the Eldonian um the Eldonian Centre in the north end of Liverpool, the area where he would have lived. There's a plaque there as well. So there's those reminders, but for the family ourselves, it sort of brought us together in that um three of my cousins emigrated to the uh United States. They all three of them married uh US servicemen who are based in Burton Wood, I believe. So there's a big extended family in America. And so with the advent of Facebook, there's a family Facebook, uh, the descendants of James Clark. So all those connections all over the uh, eastern side of the United States is there as well. It's not just James's legacy on the Mersey that creates generational connections across the Clark family, but the river itself. Martin's role of restoration manager for the Northwest and manager of the South Docks on the British Waterways Regeneration Project has begun the continuing work on the transformation of the Liverpool Docks into a modern, vibrant space. The, the river gives Liverpool a sense of place and, um, and, and the waterfront really, other than London, I think, can't be matched anywhere. And not many places in the world. I mean, the, the Shanghai Bund... Um, and the buildings there where we're based and inspired by the three graces in Liverpool. You know, that's one of the greatest cities in the world. So yeah, the waterfront and the river and the docks is all really massive part of what the city is about and why it's here. It's a beautiful environment which some people don't realise so they go to the waterfront. And, um, you know, that history and that environment and the beauty of our city and the list of buildings, you know, gives the, can give the people a sense of pride. Through the river, Martin, like James, has a sense of place and purpose. He has also been able to use his passion to give back to the people of his city, helping to create something long-lasting for the people of Liverpool and generations to come. Its primary aim was to animate the the, uh, the water space in the Albert Docks. If you think before that, there would have been the odd yacht coming in through the Herculaneum Docks at the bottom, but, you know, the, the docks were... Um, didn't really have anything on the water, whereas now you've got uh, moorings for, for narrow boats who can travel down, and Liverpool's a destination for them. It's a catalyst for the, uh, the regeneration in Liverpool, uh, Liverpool waters. These lands of many waters have created and sustained connections within the Clark family. A 14-year-old James Clark embarked on a journey of uncertainty to find his place and change the lives of the people of Liverpool. What does that mean for the Clark family? And what impact does his legacy leave? Well, it's a sense of pride for the family, as you can imagine. Um, and, you know, for, for my children, my son's called James Clark. So I think, you know, there's the, the, the natural thing that you get as a family, but also it's a really positive story. It's about, you know, he had nothing, they had nothing. But, you know, coming from very humble roots, he managed to make a massive impact on the city. Um, you know, so for me, the story means, you know, no matter what you've got, everybody's good at something. He was very good at swimming. He made the most of it. And look what happened. So, you know, I think uh, everyone's got the potential to do something great. James Clark is a proud example of a hero at sea. 
You can see his medals at the People's Republic Gallery and Museum of Liverpool, including the Royal Life Saving Society Medal for saving life from drowning. Today, similar acts of heroism live on in our seas, perhaps known and documented no better than photographer and storyteller Jack Lowe. Part of what he calls his midlife correction, he launched the Lifeboat Station Project, an eight-year mission to photograph all of the Royal National Lifeboat Institution's 238 lifeboat stations across the UK and Ireland. Using a Victorian photography style of photographing on glass, he's documenting the critical work of the lifeboat volunteers and has been witness to some unbelievable rescues at sea. His visit to the Wirral back in March this year proved no different. After a warm reception at West Kirby, Jack had barely brought out his camera when... Immediately, there was a shout. You know, the pages sounded, and they were looking at me thinking, you've come here all this way to photograph us, and now we're going to be, you know, out on a shout. And uh, But I don't mind that, because it, it is what it is. But to watch them jump into action um, and scoot across the sands towards Hillbury Island and rescue two old women who had slipped on a very steep part of the island and bring them back and into the station and look after them, you know, proper arms around them, cups of tea, all that kind of thing, until it was ascertained that they didn't actually have to go to hospital, I don't think. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a machine that springs into action after this sequence of events, you know, from somebody calling the Coast Guard to the Coast Guard informing the lifeboat station and then launching the lifeboat. Uh, it's something to behold. So I was immediately faced with these amazing people doing this incredible thing. What an introduction to the Wirral, where Jack, along with Wes Kirby, also photographed the stations and crew at New Brighton and Hoy Lake. Hoy Lake, too, was no short on heroes. Here, Jack met Tracy Davies, the RNLI's first female SLARS driver, which stands for Shannon Launch and Recovery System. It's a mega mobile slipway and tractor that launches an 18-ton, 25-knot Shannon-class lifeboat into the sea. Here's Tracy herself describing how it feels to drive the SLARS. When you look at what you're responsible for, it's quite scary. They make a point, you know, that for the first 10 or 15 minutes, you're the most important kingpin in all this because without you, we don't get to go out there. And it, it's such a responsibility, but as I say, you've got to kind of distance yourself from it and just do the job that you've been trained to do. And then once they've gone, you kind of like, oh my goodness, you know, have I just done that? You know, and sometimes it's blowing an absolute hoolie and the sea state is quite bad. And because we have such a flat beach, it's a long push to get, because as soon as you hit the water, you're not dragging a boat, you're pushing a boat blind and you're relying on the coxswain, you and him or her as a team to get the boat safely to sea to do what they're trained to do. But yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of myself because um, the rig that we had before the SLARS, um, the Talis, um, it was a bit of a tank. Um, it was very crude, but um, I, I drove it. Um, and of course, when they said that we were getting the new rig, the Supercat, I kind of said, oh, 
not for me, it's too high tech, but it's such a big support. The RNOI, they encouraged me. You've got nothing to lose, have a go, you know, and the, 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 the guys were just great. Um, and then the self-doubt I had disappeared. And I thought, yeah, actually I can do this. Tracy is just one of the many volunteers around the UK that, at the sound of a page, drop everything to run down to the water, don their lifeboat jackets, and take on the huge responsibility to save lives on rough seas. You have to wonder, what makes them do it? Whenever you visit any lifeboat station, any of the 238 RNLI lifeboat stations, but also there are independent lifeboat stations too. Um, So I think any lifeboat volunteer has these same qualities. I think... They do it for several reasons. They want to be part of something. They want to um, give something back, if you like. You know, they have that kind of community ethos that I think is so important for helping the world go around, and we're going to need it more and more um, as as time goes on. Um, but that community ethos that we see in them is just extraordinary and beautiful to behold. You know, they're always putting the interests of others and the safety of others before their own, before their own family sometimes. You know, they're dropping everything when the emergency pager sounds um, to go and help somebody that they more than likely don't know at sea. It's it's quite a special thing. And I've witnessed it myself on several occasions now while I've been making my, my photographs or audio recordings. You know, I've seen or heard the pages go off and watch them jump into action. It's really incredible. But lifeboat stations in themselves are community hubs, you know, and so once you're a lifeboat volunteer, you're not just somebody who's turning up and jumping on a lifeboat and off you go. It's everything around it. The fundraising, um, keeping the boat in good order, keeping the launch tractor in good order, keeping the boathouse in good order and it's a meeting of families and then children coming up through the ranks. And that's another reason why people might become a lifeboat volunteer is through tradition. Um, Maybe their father, grandfather, had been on the lifeboat. So there are all kinds of reasons why people do it. But the crux of it really is that they are selfless, brave people who think about others before themselves. This care for others surely drives the legendary Davy Dodd another crew member Jack met on his visit to Hoy Lake. He's been on the lifeboat there for well over 50 years, over 30 of which he was coxswain. Imagine that, 50 years of deep investment into your local area, an intricate understanding of the highs and lows of the River Dee, and learned foresight into where vessels might get into trouble, all of which he's now passed on to his son, Andy, who's also been coxswain of the lifeboat. You wonder, is there something about being near water that ties people both to the landscape and to each other? The sea is a very graphic environment, isn't it? You know, when you're standing on the shore, I often think about this, there's the water meeting the land. And sometimes I'm stunned that it can be so calm. You know, we're on a planet that's spinning at a thousand miles an hour or thereabouts. And how is it that sometimes we can just see a perfectly still, calm day where the water meets the land? But I think when it comes to communities living by the sea, you know, they'll see it in all its forms. They'll see the rough with the smooth, you know? Um, And if there is a community by the sea, it's probably there because the sea has provided part of the living for that community. And so there's, a, I guess, an unwritten awareness that, say, if somebody's a fisherman, um, that 
when they go out to sea, things can go wrong. You know, that you, when you're waving somebody off, it's not just out of love or friendliness. There's also this feeling of, you know, will you come back? And I know that sounds maybe a little bit of a darker side to it, but it's the, the truth of it, of course, and that's why lifeboats exist, um, because of that very notion. So I think it then does have a binding quality. You know, I think the, the sea binds people that way. The dangers of it bind people together um, because everyone, I don't know, maybe everyone's looking out for one another just that little bit more. Along with a united force, the dangers of the sea also necessitate the streamlined design of the lifeboat stations and the crew's response. No lag can be afforded. And this too seems to hold a beauty for Jack. I heard somebody say on my journey once, it was actually a, it was a, a seafarer heading back to his boat in the marina of an evening. I think he'd just been to the pub or something. And he was just standing looking at the lifeboat that was there that I'd just been photographing the crew by that day. And uh, I asked him if he was okay. And he said, yeah. He said, it's beautiful, isn't it? I said, the lifeboat? He said, yeah. I said, yeah, I think it is. Well, I said, what, what, do you, what do you like about it? He said, well, there's nothing spare. I thought it was a great way of putting it. You know, everything on that lifeboat is there for a purpose and designed to the utmost specification to keep the lifeboat volunteers safe and to enable them to do their job at sea and to keep, obviously, the casualties safe as well in all conditions. And I think that's the buzz that I had when I was a kid. You know, I didn't quite know how to describe it in that way. But when I saw these vessels in front of me, I just thought it was extraordinary. The lifeboat station, the community, the lifeboats have to fit as seamlessly as possible within this wilderness. And so you can't have bells and whistles and frilly things on the boat you know, if it's going to be punching through 30 feet waves, you know, for example. Um, so yes, there is a, how can I put it, there's a, a beauty in the utilitarianism of it, you know, the, the, the stripped-down nature of it, yet so, you know, so functional and um, strong and powerful, you know, it's... Even when the engines aren't fired up, you can kind of feel that this is a beast that's going to come alive, you know, and do whatever you tell it to do. <laughs> it's incredible. The RNLI seem to have a lot right. It's a charity of brave volunteers that has been entirely funded by voluntary contributions for nearly 200 years. Does its unique combination of community and utility hold lessons for our own stormy seas ahead? Jack faced his own difficulties keeping the lifeboat station project afloat through the pandemic and now through our own cost of living crisis. With all the challenges our society and our planet faces, he thinks on this idea of necessity. What do we really need to survive? I am really, really thinking about the climate a lot and community a lot. We're going to need those qualities, those human qualities, to bind us together, to get us through the times ahead. And these topics are never far from anybody's lips, you know, and I have to say, I didn't expect to be talking about it now, but I'm pleased we are, because this is the reason why it's knocked my project, because this is the reality of it. You know, these forces that are coming to bear, whether it's climate-related, um, economic, well, you could say that those things are completely intrinsic, um, this is what it means. It's going to knock us. It's going to knock the work we make. It's going to affect how we earn our livings. It's going to affect how we live in our homes. And community spirit is the thing above all, 
I think, that will get us through these things. You know, they say, uh, think global, act local. And that's part of what people mean when they say that, is that we need to look at people like lifeboat volunteers or the emergency services as role models. You know, we can look to them all as shining examples of how to behave that little bit more kindly towards one another. And kindness, there's another word that's going to really come to bear too. You know, I really feel like sometimes we're very insular. You know, I think uh, modern cars are a good example of that. You know, we're in our bubbles with very little empathy or awareness of what's actually happening outside that vehicle. Um, I think they're quite good metaphors for modern life. Um, And we need to break outside those bubbles and really think about how our behaviour is affecting our fellow humans. Um, And yes, be a little bit kinder, more thoughtful, putting others first before ourselves. And uh, it'll make darker times seem just that little bit easier. There's something special about the people in these stories. From the lone hero with a keen eye kept on the shore, to official lifeboat volunteers. Whether it's an instinct, a need for survival, or an urge to be part of a community that looks out for one another, there seems to be a formula fueling the heroism dotted around our island. One that surely provides inspiration for our own lives. Thank you for listening to the National Museum's Liverpool podcast. Don't forget to subscribe for more episodes from across our varied collections, from Liverpool film to space exploration. And if you like your stories nautically themed, you might enjoy previous episodes Underwater and Love. You can find all our episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts.